Hello, welcome to The Lore You Know, a show where we chat with some amazing human beings who are storytellers, collectors, and folklorists as we discuss the importance of, inspiration behind, and history of recording and sharing regional tales. Today, I have author Thomas White with me. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day today. Thanks for having me. So, first of all, I have to ask if your students were excited to get out of class early today. Uh, yeah, I mean, they never show much promotion either way. So, <laughs> yeah, they were, they were, uh, they're, they're always glad to leave early. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, can you explain to our audience your connection to the supernatural, the strange, the weird? Yeah, I, uh, I'm a, so my, my background is I'm a, a historian, uh, I've trained as a historian and public historian. I'm also a, a I've written about folklore, the intersection of folklore and history for many years. And um, I basically, I, I teach history and I also run an archives uh, at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. I teach at Duquesne and at La Roche University. And uh, before that, I worked at the Heinz History Center in Pittsburgh as an archivist. So I kind of have multiple jobs. I'm a historian, folklorist, archivist, um, but I've always had a lifelong interest in the, you know, the unusual stories of the uh, of the region, well, in, in general, you know, all over the place. But um, especially like in this region, ones I heard growing up, ones I, I you know, uh, Pennsylvania has so many great legends that once I, I found myself working in the field of public history, I, I started to dive into them more. Um, and try to record and explore some of some of these things. Mm-hmm. So, did you grow up in the Pittsburgh area then? Yeah, I grew up just north of the city uh, in Ross Township. Um, okay. But I had always heard these stories uh, when, when I was young. There were two particular stories that I always heard. One was this legend of this haunted road when I was in high school called Blue Mist Road in North Park. Its real name is Irwin Road, but it was supposedly haunted, and also the location of the Ku Klux Klan, uh, oh. satanic group, possibly a witch's coven, some weird hybrid <laughs> monsters, and pretty much everything other urban legend you could throw onto a road was on yeah. Blue Mist Road. Um, and then the other was the uh, kind of the conspiracy theory or kind of local legend of the lost bomber of the Monongahela, which was a plane that disappeared in the Monongahela River um, in, the, in 1956. It really did crash and was never seen again. And there's all this speculation and all the all these stories about it and what was on it and was it secretly removed and you know there's there's a whole kind of little uh uh local legend industry around that one because <laughs> it's it's uh, right. uh it's a big story in pittsburgh yeah. yeah did you go explore that road with friends and and such oh i've, I've been to bloomist road over a hundred times <laughs> yeah I've, I've written about it i've explored it i've interviewed hundreds of literally hundreds of people now about their experiences there it's uh probably the legend i know the best uh of all all the legends in pennsylvania mm-hmm. yeah. of all the urban legends that are tied to it which ones seem to be more uh truthful i guess than others <laughs> it's interesting because it's i i like it because it's the this road has layers of legends right and it kind of mm-hmm. represents how i it, it for me it's always the best example of how folklore can work um and also then weird things can still happen even when, fo- when, when everything's explained too. Um, so the legend first started in, as far as the earliest I can, I can find is uh, 
around uh, the early 70s. Now, I should back up and explain. So Blue, Blue Mist Road, a.k.a. Irwin Road, its real name, is about three, three and a half miles long. Most of the road is closed now and is owned by the Allegheny Land Trust, which in, it's right up against North Park, north of Pittsburgh, which is a huge park. And most of the road is closed. And so it's like an abandoned road, essentially. Now, the first part of it's still maintained by the county. And then the very last like half mile is connects to a neighborhood. And there's actually some really nice houses. And uh, but the, most of the road is abandoned. And uh, it gets the name Blue Mist Road, actually, because there re it really does look like there's blue mist because there's a stream that runs next to it called Irwin Run. Hmm. And uh, at night, when you shine a flashlight, when it gets foggy, you know, if, if, if in the right temperatures, the mist always looks blue for some reason, when you should, especially with LED lights now, it looks really blue. Um, so that's kind of how it got its name. But weirdly, there's no actual legends about the mist, really, uh, or if they right. are, they're tangential. <laughs> but um, the road, so as far as the early 70s, there were two legends. There was a legend that a family had been driving down there when it was open. It was closed sometimes in, in the early 80s or late 70s, early 80s. But there was this, this legend that this family was driving down one night and either a drunk driver or a deer came across the road. And the road's very narrow. Mm -hmm. And they went off the road and they swerved and they hit a tree and uh, they were all killed. And if you went back and now you'll recognize this part, if you went back to that spot later, where you could, if you could drive your car back when you could drive there, mm -hmm. find that spot, you put the car in neutral, their ghost will oh, push your car yeah. up the yeah. way from the scene of the accident. Now, at the far end of the road, after you, you get up to connects to Route 910, across Route 910 is a cemetery. And in that cemetery were these two tombstones that lean toward each other. And the rumor always was, or the story was, that at midnight on certain nights under a full moon, mainly. But there's always variations, of course. Under sure. full moon, the, the stones will lean together and touch right at midnight. And supposedly a husband and wife, right? So those Aww. legends seem pretty, they seem pretty harmless legends. You know what I mean? I mean, a tragic, but yeah. harmless. And uh, so over time, what happened is that um, the by the mid-70s, the legends took a darker turn, right? And this was when you started hearing legends of the Ku Klux Klan meeting out on the road and hanging people at a hanging tree. And the hanging oh. tree was sort of supernatural. And you could tell the hanging tree because it would bleed when the moon was full, right? And that road had oh. dozens of trees hanging over it. You know what yeah. I mean? So there were all these speculated hanging trees. And even in the graveyard, there was this big tree that looked like a southern cypress it wasn't a cypress but it had that if you've ever seen pictures of and this is kind of a dark subject but of lynchings in the south they're often on those you know those trees with the low, yeah. big thick trees low branches it looked like one of those mm. um even though it wasn't one of those types of trees but you could see easily there was probably two dozen trees that looked like you could you know they had branches over you could hang someone from and the rumor was that one of these trees was the place that would hang people and so if you found that tree, it might be bleeding if it's a full moon, or you might see someone under it. And here's the ghost of the victim, right? And they disappear. Right. But then if you linger around, you will be the victim. It didn't matter if you were white or black <laughs> or any kind of, you know, if they caught you there, you were the next victim. And of course, there's the classic story that the uh, car pulled up the road there. And one night, this, this couple, back when you could drive on the road, this couple uh, had their car breakdown on, uh, on the road. And the husband got out and walked, you know, he couldn't fix it. So he said, stay in the car. I'm going to go get help. He walks off oh. and a long, you know, 20 minutes go by and half an hour goes by and then an hour goes by and the woman's getting scared. She hears the scraping on the roof. Of the oh car. no. 
Yeah. And she finally works up the courage to get out and hear the car stalled under the hanging tree. And it was her husband hanging from the tree. Mm-hmm. It was like the, the tips of his feet scraping the top of the car. And she, of course, ran off into the darkness, never to be heard from again, which makes you wonder who told the story. But uh, you're not supposed to ask. Right, that. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so those kind of legends circulate. Then by the by the uh, the late 80s, mid to late 80s, um, you heard all the stories about satanic cults on the road. And this is like what I heard in high school, like it, from the late 80s into the early 90s, um, that there were satanic cults meeting, especially at this place called the Witch House. There were these ruins of a structure, like actually several structures. And there was a, like, it looked like an old stone well. And that's supposedly where they would sacrifice victims and throw them in. But even though it wasn't that deep, but, but, um, but there was a big structure that was in ruins. And that's where supposedly the, the cult would meet. People claimed to see them up there. Mm-hmm. performing ceremonies sacrificing people always from another school district you know uh <laughs> never from ours you know that was before the internet right. so you couldn't check and the the idea was that uh um you know that they were up there but they were also summoning things right so people would claim to see like bipedal hoof prints on the road and oh. like demons and the devil himself or whatever plus they might right. kill you plus there's ghosts of their victims so as you can see it's starting to sound a lot like an evil timeshare at this point with these layers of <laughs> And then by the 90s, the story about the tombstone changed that that they weren't touching under a full moon, that as you got closer and closer to the year 2000, the stones got closer and closer together. And when they finally touched, the world would end. And then then by the early, you know, the early 2000s, then um, people were just coming, ghost hunters from everywhere, looking for any of these things or any of these ghosts. Plus, there were all these I mean, I literally could spend two hours talking about other tangential one-off stories about the place, weird lights, um, a half man, half deer, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff. So they're just these layers of of legends that piled on. But the interesting thing was why I like it is because when you go back and research, a friend of mine, John Shalkowski, found the original car accident. We were always wondering if there was a real car accident and inspired it. And here there was, and it happened in 1973, right where the road meets Babcock Boulevard, the one end, and this woman and her children were in the car. Now, she was killed. They survived. But it, we think that's when the legend started. And what happened is what people don't realize is nearby in North Park, there's a gravity hill. Okay. which is a separate legend. You know, it's like a little gravity hill at Coomer and McKinney Roads where, you know, it looks like you're rolling uphill. And this one's an optical illusion where it, you know, it, it looks like you're rolling uphill. And before the internet, though, when everything was word of mouth, that road is, Coomer and McKinney isn't creepy at all. You know what I mean? It's just like a road. Right. But we think that the idea of that road got transferred onto the car accident story at that site when people were just telling the story and somehow the Gravity Hill legend about rolling uphill and having the ghost push you got moved to Blue Mist Road. The clan stuff's interesting because I've researched dozens and dozens of legends around Western Pennsylvania. And right in the mid-70s, a whole bunch of sites supposedly have clan activity. Mm-hmm. And I think they're all in the outer suburbs around urban areas. And I think it has something to do with the kind of the movement of, you know, even though the civil rights movement primarily, we think of the 50s and 60s, but a lot of the fallout and the reaction to that spread to the outer suburbs by the 70s. And right. even though that's the hardest thing to track, because no one's going to admit, hey, I was racist in the 70s, you know, and these stories <laughs> right. were around. But but you have these, you know, these legends that kind of spread out. And there's some kind of reaction to it. And I could go more into that detail, but it happens on a lot of sites simultaneously, mm-hmm. right? So you have these mm-hmm. different layers. 
and, and this could be more complicated than that as well. But then by the 80s, of course, every, I think a lot of people are familiar with the satanic panic in the 80s when there were Satanists yep. mostly everywhere, you know. Yes. And so you had this whole thing evolve. So the, the road kind of reflects this. And of course, the tombstones, as you approach the year 2000, Y2K, the end of the world, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So, and there will have been people found dead there. In fact, there was a guy who the police chased here that was shooting at people. They found a hunter dead up against a tree one time. And so, and every time I take my class there, I take my folklore class there and we walk the road. I try to time it so the sun goes down at the furthest part. So they have to walk all the way back in the dark just to scare them. But Perfect. almost every time something weird happens, like this one time down in the, the valley uh, near the creek, there was this, we heard this splashing sound at the most remote part of the road. Like there shouldn't have been anyone around, no houses for like two miles. And we hear this noise and we shine the flashlight down. There's a dog going back and forth like a broken record through the creek, just out one side, back the other, back the other, back, just back and forth. And then we see feet. We bring the feet, the, the, the flashlights up, and there's this couple. It looks like a modern version of the American Gothic painting, standing there completely stone faced. I don't know how they got down there. I couldn't have got down there without being covered in mud. Right. And as the flashlight hits the man's face, he just says, "Can you please turn out the light?" And we shut out the light, and then we just really went, went really fast down the road. But every time I take my class there, something weird happens, and everybody I know when they go there, I mean. Most, I mean, most times it's just like a nice walk, but there's plenty of weird things that happen on the road that aren't easily explainable by the legend necessarily. The most interesting thing I found out that just when you think, and this is what I love studying folklore, just when you think it's all explainable. I had a student that did research on the road for a class and her, uh, she was related to a, a, a cop in the area that used to patrol that road in the eighties. And she was just joking with him, telling him about the, the car story. Yeah. And he said, no, that's not how it happened. She was fine. We found her in the car. We didn't find him till the next day hanging in the woods. And here the, they found this guy hanging from a tree in the woods. But he said the weird thing was it was never reported because they didn't report suicides. But he never he didn't really think it was a suicide because the guy didn't leave the car with a rope. And the car really did break down. Like it wasn't like a, a planned breakdown or something. It, the car spontaneously broke down. There was no signs that anything would happen that he was unstable. He did not leave mm-hmm. the car with a rope and they found him hanging deep in the, in the woods along the road the next day. And so it, there's always like some twist, you know what I mean? There's always some creepy yeah. thing. That but anyway, I could, I could go on about that road all day. I don't mean to take up the whole thing with that, that road, but that's one of my favorite legends just because of the layers and layers and layers. And that's only a fraction of them. It's, it's amazing what can get piled on a road. Yeah, I like that it gets recycled for every uh, everything that comes up. Like I can imagine more things. It'll just evolve over the years for whatever fits what's happening in society at the time. Yeah, in many ways, it's just like a road's just like a blank slate. So you can you can impose whatever <laughs> legend you want on it. It, it, it seems. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So the original accident that happened there, mm-hmm. you said it was a mother and two kids, and the mother passed away, but the kids survived. Has anybody yes. ever tracked them down and asked them about we stuff? We have not. We have not. No, no, I haven't. I haven't tried to do that. Um, that might be traumatic. I yeah, I, I don't want to like the, you know, that's the problem with a lot of folklore when you're dealing with these yeah. kind of contemporary legends is mm-hmm. that sometimes you have the, uh, you know, I find some really interesting stories 
but they're still kind of almost too recent. There's, there may Mm -hmm. be accidents involved and yeah, it it can be difficult to kind of probe into the, into the more modern ones. Now the older ones are are easier just because they're, you know, usually everyone involved has passed away by that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. Cause certainly you would think that they've heard the stories as well. There's probably no way to avoid that in that area. Oh yeah. Yeah. You definitely, uh, everybody has heard the stories, at least everybody in a certain age group, even the younger people are at least aware that there's supposed to be a haunted road out there in North park, you know, but, but uh, it's definitely a popular legend. Mm -hmm. When do you take your students out there? Is it like around Halloween if it's a fall semester or? Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. We do do it in October and you know, because what we'll do is we'll, we'll spend a whole semester talking about folklore and then we'll, 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 uh, you know, we'll do different types. I, I like all types of folklore. I mean, you end up, I end up doing a lot of supernatural folklore and things like folk magic and, and stuff, mm-hmm. but I like other traditional types, tall tales, you know, things like that. Uh, there's a lot of stuff out there and a lot of it overlaps too. I mean, there's a lot of overlap in cate- kind of categories. I often don't like the categories because they often don't, you know, nothing quite fits them exactly. So, mm-hmm. um, you know. Yeah. When you were growing up, did you have somebody that told you different stories like this that kind of caught your attention and steered you down this career path? Yeah, my my uh, my mom was actually very into into this type of stuff. She liked anthropology and, and that kind of stuff and, uh, and certainly weird stories. And, and I would always hear these uh, these legends from people in the family and always be listening, you know. So um, especially the B-25 and the Monongahela, my grandfather actually worked for the Pittsburgh Press, which is defunct now, but he, he worked for the press for years. I remember first being exposed to that when uh, there was a around 1980. I was yeah, I was like five, um, but there was uh, these two newspapers. He always had newspapers again for free you know, when you worked there, and there was this two two part series that I remember sitting in the in the living room on the B25 and this original kind of conspiracy researcher named Robert Johns was doing research at the time. By that point, it was 1980. It was already you know 25 years after it happened. And, uh, uh, you know, he was doing a lot of research and then, you know, the legend's kind of gone strong since. Um, mm-hmm. But I was lucky to do some work with that legend when I worked at the Heinz History Center as well. So. That's cool. As um, an archivist, what are some stories that you've come across that are really like maybe you've integrated into some of your books? Well, I, uh, I always like, um, uh, you know, I just even at my current job here at Duquesne, you know, one thing, I, you know, I collect all the obviously the university records and some other things but i also end up collecting all the all the stories and legends and college campuses are great places for for legends and folklore you know and there's there's a lot of unique a lot of them have very unique legends um uh and duquesne has quite a few and uh you know some are pretty common there's always like the haunted dorms in every college but like duquesne has great story you know it was founded by a bunch of missionary priests back in the 1870s and um the spirit in order and uh, they were called the holy ghost fathers at the time and they they bought a piece of property up uh, became old main like the main administration building and the property originally was a uh a hospital a two-story hospital that was built in the 1850s and they they didn't tear that down they actually moved it across the street and kept it and actually added a floor below it and made it this building called saint john's hall for the seminarians but that hospital was owned by a guy named Dr. Albert Walter, 
who was a real surgeon. I mean, as real of a surgeon as you can be in the 1850s, but he was trained in Europe. <laughs> he wasn't like a quack doctor. So most of the other doctors in Pittsburgh hated him. But he, <laughs> he uh, was also an abolitionist and that hospital was a stop on the Underground Railroad mm. because it was a high on a bluff. It was along the river valley. It was right on the route that came through here. And it was easy for him to hide people. Plus being up on a bluff, it, People don't walk out, even today, people don't walk up here unless they have to, because it's all uphill. Right. Uh, you know, so yeah. it it was a safe place to hide people. And so for years, he hid, he hid slaves that escaped and were on their way to Canada. And then uh, one time, though, one collapsed on the doorstep. He brought him aside and he died. Well, years later, when the Civil War started uh, and when the North finally started to win and gain some traction, you know, they would capture a lot of Confederates. Most of them went to a prison camp, but if one of them was severely or needed medical treatment, they would give them medical treatment. Um, and so there was this severely wounded Confederate that needed some kind of surgery or needed some kind of, you know, I don't know if he lost a leg or something, the details are vague. He ended up at Dr. Albert Walt, uh, Albert's Walters hospital and he passed away as well. Hmm. So when the Holy Ghost fathers bought the property off of his descendants after he died in the 1880s uh, and they built Old Main, which is the building. They made the bricks by hand right nearby in the brickyard. They built Old Main and uh, they built, they moved the other building across the street. One thing I didn't mention is like there actually were, you know, most underground railroad places, people think they have secret tunnels and things, but they don't. They're just, you know, a hiding place. Right. Well, we had a secret tunnel <laughs> and it went out <laughs> under the street. Not really secret, cool. but it was hidden, you know. And yeah. uh, that, that tunnel was still, in fact, it's still, parts of it are still there. But so he would hide people down there. Well, immediately after they built the old main, and then when they, they moved into St. John's, they started hearing all these noises from the basement of both buildings, right? They, they dug a basement for St. John's, and then they had the basement of old main, and that tunnel was under the street there. And what they heard was what, and the, the irony is this came, originally came from the priests, not the students, that they would hear, and the students picked it up pretty quick, but it would hear what sounded like two Southern voices fighting, the ghost of the slave and the ghost of the Confederate soldier fighting in the basement of both buildings. And that was for years, people, in fact, for a while, by the 1920s, they were locking the freshmen in there to torture them, basically leaving them down there all night. It was an initiation ritual. They won't let me do that to anybody today. I don't know why. Yeah. But, <laughs> but it was an initiation ritual. And so for a long time, like people would hear that, right? You know, and they mm -hmm. would hear these stories. And people report hearing it in other parts of the building. And, and up until now, St. John's eventually was known as St. Mary's. Then it was torn down in 1971. Um, but for years, it was uh, people would report hearing weird things. And Old Main has other ghost stories, but but that's like the classic. And what happened ultimately is in St. John's one night, there was so much noise that one of the German priests got angry and, and he kicked open the basement door and yelled, I'm coming down to drive you out. And the the Confederate ghost, according to Brother Jerry, who was a kind of historian of the order, and uh, he basically said the exact quote was, come ahead, I know who you are, I'm not afraid of you, and a Southern, Southern I can't do a Southern accent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah. so so uh, he, he did, so the German priest just got mad, and then got his holy water and everything, and charged down there, and like, people said it sounded like it was physically fighting with a ghost, but it, was, it sounded like it had like a building exorcism or blessing, and right. eventually he came up, and no one ever heard the Confederate ghost again. But to this day, huh. people claim they still hear the ghost of the slave and old main in the basement of old main. Huh. And um, 
But I, I like that story because it illustrates another use of folklore in addition to it actually being creepy down there. But, <laughs> but um, <laughs> I don't know if I should officially say that. <laughs> but, it's, um, <laughs> uh, you know, the basement is creepy. But, yeah. you know, by telling that story, not only does it tell, it carries the history of that site, right? Because most people wouldn't remember that was a site on the Underground Railroad without that story, you know? Right. So, the, so ghost stories have, they carry a form of history and maybe there is something supernatural going on. And maybe, you know, maybe there's, I mean, I don't try to judge that because that's unquantifiable yeah. anyway. Right. So, you know, there's, and, and one thing I always tell people with folklore is there's multiple layers of things going on and so they don't have to be mutually exclusive, mm-hmm. you know, so you can have a real supernatural experience or what's perceived as one. You can have history and cultural information being exchanged. And that could be different depending on who the audience is. It's kind of like that. I don't know who the, the art who the artist was one time that and I don't know the quote, but I'm paraphrasing, but basically said that you need the viewer to create the, to, to complete the artwork, you know, because mm-hmm. they, they're the one that interprets it in their own way. And that's how folklore works, you know, is, is you can, everyone brings a different interpretation depending on what, what uh, situation they're in and what they're bringing to the table. Right. Right. Maybe the ghost is really there too. You know, I mean, <laughs> it's right. one of those things, you know, I don't know. So, <laughs> um, so I'm sure that you're familiar with the Foxfire series of yes. collecting folklore in Appalachia. Have you ever done anything like that with your students, where you've kind of sent them out to whether it's gathered from uh, family or maybe somebody in their neighborhood or something, just to start collecting folklore? Yeah, I do that with my my folklore class. I have them go out and try to collect local legends or localized legends. Now, my classes aren't really super huge because it's like i do that one up at la roche where the class size is smaller but um yeah i've gotten actually some really there's been some really good information collected over the years uh through that and um all people some people do stuff at their workplace i remember i had a guy for that worked at the uh, allegheny county jail and which is a really old building downtown it looks like a castle and um there's all kinds of ghost stories about that place and all kinds that's the if you ever heard the biddle boys and the movie Mrs. Sofal, where the jail warden's wife from the movie from the 80s, uh, where the jail warden's wife fell in love with a prisoner and helped them escape. And they escaped up north. They were mm-hmm. trying to get to Canada. It, it's uh, that that's the, the jail that happened in. But there were other, all these other stories. And and he actually went and recorded some of these ghost stories from the inside. that They don't talk about. Um, but, you know, I've had people collect stories on on some new versions of some classic legends like in western pa we have the green man who uh aka charlie no face which is a pretty famous legend the guy that was horribly disfigured in an accident and uh supposedly haunts all these locations he was a real guy Mm -hmm. though he's a real man uh who named ray robinson that lived in beaver county pa he used to walk Mm -hmm. on this road at night in the 50s and people started to see him and it spawned this whole urban legend i mean they called him charlie no face originally because he was severely burned he had touched when he was 10 years old in 1919 he accidentally grabbed a high tension wire on a trolley bridge while oh. climbing was horribly disfigured he thought he would die but he didn't and he lived with his family and his sisters eventually and he used to walk on Copple new galilee road and uh it basically spawned this whole this whole uh, idea of the green man people from the outside would call him the green man and either of these rumors, he glowed and everything. It was just he was he was burned, but then he'd sometimes wear like green army surplus coats and things like that. 
And, but then after, like, kind of after he disappeared, he ended up dying in 1985, but, but stopped walking on the road long before then. What happened is the legend moved out and spread to neighboring areas up to Newcastle, Pennsylvania, into Ohio, near Youngstown, uh, yeah. down to the south of Pittsburgh. And mo- another famous part is uh, he supposedly haunts a tunnel in the south hills of Pittsburgh called Green Man's Tunnel, um, which interestingly, there may have been another guy that was electrocuted near there, which might be why the legends kind of converged there. But, uh, you know, and it became kind of an urban legend. Like if you go in Green Man's Tunnel, you call his name three times, supposedly he'll appear and come out, you know, and, and chase you or whatever. Um, usually nobody sticks around by that point though they're screaming running away so sure yeah that's a lot of integration of other like i mean that sounds a lot like uh, bloody mary or something going to the mirror and saying the name three times and yeah there's definitely uh, yeah so whenever you have these buildings on campus i mean are there like investigators that come out like to actually i mean are they or are they even permitted to investigate on campus? Cause I've also contacted other universities and they're like, we don't associate with that stuff. They don't even want to talk about it. Yeah. We don't, uh, we don't uh, usually have people, you know, I mean, we do a ghost tour here. Uh, I do the ghost tour and everything. So that's fine. They're not opposed to people talking about the legends. They just don't right. let people walking around, you know, in the buildings. That makes sense. Um, especially the past couple of years, obviously, but, but um, mm-hmm. you know, it, the uh yeah they, they tend not to do that however it's not like they're you know the legends are are told frequently um mm. i've been at other places when i worked at the heinz history center in the early 2000s they had ghost hunters come in because that was used to be an ice house that exploded and then it was rebuilt almost identical like back in 1898 it blew up then they rebuilt another one basically identical design and uh, over the years people would claim to see and hear a variety of things in there so they let they let ghost hunters go in there, um, but yeah, some some of the places do some don't. You know, it depends. Yeah, so <clears throat> there were elements of well, I I mean, they, like you said, different things bleed over into others. But when you were talking about, I think is that called the the boyfriend urban legend where he's like scraping on the roof, or there's yes. a, there's an actual yeah. name to all of that. So that <clears throat> when you started that story, it actually reminded me of the way a few of the goat man stories that I've heard start yes. where there's a couple and then something happens and the man disappears and then the woman finds him. Is there, is there a goat man somewhere in that area too? Like, did they throw that on the road yet? <laughs> no, actually there's not. I mean, there's goat man stories from out in like York PA. I know there's a yeah. few, um, the goat man actually, it's interesting. Cause I know I, I, I've, uh, I know the guy who's actually done a ton of research on like the original Goatman legend from close to DC, um, mm. Dave Puglia. And uh, there's the Goatman's kind of spread out all over the place. But again, that was a, a legend based on a real guy as well. Um, yeah. In, uh, in uh, Maryland, actually. I think he was actually technically in Maryland. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's spread out. We don't really have the Goatman in Western PA, though. Uh, I think like the Green Man has monopolized the local boogeyman category <laughs> um mm-hmm. there, there's been other other kind of interesting uh side characters that have popped up in, in pa folklore that some are real some aren't you know there was a, a one that i wish i would have had m- more opportunity to document but it was kind of before the internet era so there wasn't a lot online about them mm-hmm. but uh on the north side of pittsburgh there was this guy supposedly named hatchet harry 
who the rumor was he had hacked his wife to death with a hatchet. Yes. And, you know, but like he, they let him, obviously there's got to be something to it because they let him still walk around. Right. And so no one wanted to go near Hatchet Harry in case he, he killed you. Right. But, um, but there are all kinds of variations that I've heard over the years. Uh, they, you know, this guy used to carry a hatchet around, you know, or, or everything. Supposedly there was a real guy. I don't know mm-hmm. what the story was. He was harmless. It was blown way out of proportion. <laughs> I've heard some people say but it, that was a popular legend, like in the 1950s and 60s. And, yeah. uh, so it was kind of, it was before my time. And, you know, the one thing as much as sometimes the internet can mess with legends and the collection of folklore, it also preserves a lot of it. So, you know, a lot of people will, will, and that was helpful when I researched Blue Mist Road is because you get these layers, right? So people that went there in the seventies, would say what they saw. And then people that went in the early eighties, what they heard and then late eighties, et cetera. Um, unfortunately, Hatchet Harry's kind of slipped through the cracks to a degree, but I'm sure I'm still looking for looking for stuff on him. But there's, uh, you know, there's so many legends. I mean, Pennsylvania is a, a great, great place because back in the 70s, there was this folklorist that traced the movement of folk traditions across the country. And um, aside from the stuff that stayed in the really deep south and the stuff that was on the coast of California that came over from like Russia and China, that kind of folklore. Um mm-hmm. The most of the folklore that came in the U.S. came in through the kind of the eastern ports, and it all actually funneled into Pennsylvania, across Pennsylvania, came to a point in Pittsburgh, which was the original gateway of the West before St. Louis, and mm-hmm. uh, then funneled down, actually down to St. Louis and kind of spread back out across the country. And I'm not sure the methodology that this guy used to collect these patterns, but he traced a whole variety of folklore traditions, and they all kind of converged into Pennsylvania. I mean, we have witch stories, werewolf stories, vampire stories, ghost stories, all kinds of monsters, uh, but all kinds of other traditional, more traditional folklore. We have tall tales. We have, you know, lost treasure stories. There's lost treasure stories everywhere. Um, Mm -hmm. There's there's really a rich tradition. Every year, like at my house, I have 25 linear feet of files. That's exactly what it sounds like, folklore. And every year I hear like 100 new stories. It's more than I can possibly research. yeah, you know, there's just so many of them. It's unbelievable. What is that author's name that you were talking about? That collected. You know, it's it slipped my mind. It's uh, it's in a um, I think the article is reprinted in the book Folk Nation by Simon Broner, or Broner. Okay. Um, All right. I think it's uh one of the except that, that book's a compilation of articles. I believe the articles in there has a map. Well, like basically a poor diagram mm-hmm. but it's you know this is from the 70s <laughs> limited map making technology for their, their computers and things. but but um yeah yeah it it, it covered the uh it should kind of showed the the, the way the folk patterns have moved across mm-hmm. i mean very much it parallels migration the way migration worked in, you know, in the u.s right uh, and pennsylvania is lucky in some sense like uh, especially southwestern pa because you tend to have this um uh cluster of people that, that keep the southwestern PA or the Pittsburgh identity even if they move away like if you go to Arizona there's a Pittsburgh bar you know but there's right. no air there's no Phoenix bar in, in Pittsburgh you know what I mean yeah, and <laughs> right, maybe because right. nobody wants to come here I don't know <laughs> but, but you know what I mean you don't have like you go to all these cities and there's like you can find a Pittsburgh bar you can find them in Italy you know and it's mm-hmm. like this weird cultural identity and a lot of people end up coming back but there's also a lot of long-term stable population here. And this is true for much of the East, but especially the places that I've looked like. So stories pass. I've seen stories go through four generations here intact 
you know, just as I've kind of tracked them, a grandmother will have the story or a great grandmother and a grandmother, the mother and the daughter. And they're all basically the stories kept intact and passed along. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting, but also makes it a great place to study folklore. So it's, you know, it's one of those, those things. And everything that you've studied, have you noticed that there may be certain key elements that seem to stay in these stories as they get passed down, even if things shift a little bit, are there certain things that we kind of cling to? Well, I think, you know, there's certain, certain aspects of it. Um, I mean, there's always the, the, you know, the kind of, uh, um, I don't know how to explain. It. I mean, I think a lot of the, the ethnic traditions were, were preserved here. I mean, Pennsylvania in general has a lot of the German folklore, um, yeah. you know, Pennsylvania Dutch, but also people, people that's often a, a miss, people often think that's confined to a specific spot, but the Germans spread out all over Pennsylvania. Um, yep. There's, there's a Deutschtown in Pittsburgh. There's German settlements all over Western PA in uh, those folk, especially like some of the folk healing and folk magic traditions, which, which I'm very interested in have spread out. Um, but definitely there's like, there's, um, uh, those traditions, a lot of like religious traditions, um, cause Pennsylvania was one of the, you know, the states where you know, William Penn obviously had the kind of an open door policy for religious groups. Uh, and so many, you know, many unusual groups came, but many people who were from groups that just maybe didn't fit where they were at came as well. So, you know, Pennsylvania has a large, large Catholic population, large Jewish population, large Orthodox population. Uh, but also had lots of Scots Irish and you know English and and all the different various German mystical groups you know right. um, that, that came through. I mean, one of the first groups to come into into uh, Eastern PA was like the Hermits of Wissahickon, who were basically occultists and alchemists. And uh, uh, Johannes Kelpius, you know, was their leader. And there were caves out there; people go for healing, but they basically had plotted out the end of the world as well. You know, and they. <laughs> dissipated of course after the world didn't end and kelpius died right. but, but the idea was you know there were, there were they weren't the only ones you know there were other groups like that uh that spread throughout pennsylvania and but you have you know all kinds of folk traditions food traditions etc but um i think you know there's definitely a lot of fertile ground for it there's a lot of uh as far as e even like modern urban legends uh anywhere in the rust belt or even Appalachia, uh, you know, throughout Appalachia, where there used to be heavily industrial areas uh, or used to be early settlement, you have lots of things like ruins and industrial ruins and, and things that lend themselves to create, uh, to the creation of legends, you know, or, or abandoned places. And, you know, folklore often talk about liminal spaces, like spaces of transition, right? Where, yeah. where you know, the legends kind of are created and thrive because they seem like they're mm -hmm. possible there, you know, things seem possible in a liminal space because um, it's not clearly defined. And, and Pennsylvania has a lot of liminal spaces um, as does the rest of Appalachia. Uh, so you have this, this kind of um, like fertile ground for these legends to thrive, you know, they continue. Yeah. Is, can you give me an example of like one of the more modern urban legends that have popped up around your area? Uh, more modern one. Let's see. Um, well, Blue Mist Road was was one of them, but uh, yeah, so, yeah. So uh, let's see another modern one. I mean, there's lots of haunted roads. I did a whole book on haunted roads. There's Shades mm -hmm. of Death Road, uh, Mystery Mile. Uh, Mystery Mile is a, a good example in, in uh, Beaver County. So uh, Mystery Mile is 
down near Ohioville in Beaver County. And it's this road where there's, it's actually about two miles long, um, Kelly Road, but it supposedly is uh, haunted, obviously. But its unique feature is supposedly animals go crazy on the road or start acting weird, right? So if you're walking your dog, it'll suddenly become aggressive or, or get agitated. And, uh, you know, there's a variety of layers to this legend, right? And so and there's, a, there's a debate on which part of the road is actually the mystery mile. Um, at least in the modern urban legend, it's Kelly Road. And at the end, of course, there's a cemetery. And uh, it's across the river from the nuclear power plant in Shippingport. So some people claim mm-hmm. that, you know, it was, oh, there's all these legends that there's, well, there's one was an Indian curse. There used to be a lot of Native American settlements up and down the Ohio River. Um, you know, satanic cult cursed the land that popped up in the 80s. The nuclear power plants causing the animals to act funny. There's also high tension lines. Back in the 80s, there was that kind of high tension line panic that was put forth as a possible reason for the animals going berserk, that, you know, the high tension power lines. Other people claim because the ghosts that haunt there, because like there was a carriage accident where the carriage went off the road, people were killed, and you can sometimes hear them screaming or hear the crash of the carriage, which wow. is actually related to another road right down the river where there may have actually been a a carriage crash that, that probably transferred but but then people claim they see these ghostly children in the woods um but a lot of it's tied that you know you can see the development of that just like the blue mist road the the, the occult stuff in the in the 80s but the community memory of the the native americans in the area as well i even the, the road that's parallel to it that has similar legends is mudlick hollow road in mudlick hollow the guy who supposedly his this guy named patrick mulvannon his wife, I usually talk about these two roads together because they, they share legend pieces and they're not that far apart. Mother Call is in Vanport and uh, Mother Call Road has uh, these, uh, well, the story is that this guy named Patrick Mulvannon was there. Uh, uh, he was in the early days, like 1840s, a uh, successful businessman, was engaged to this woman named Anna Mines, wanted to build her a house, this giant white house they called it the white house um you know as a joke but also because it was a big fancy house and uh then he had another house too he built nearby and the house is literally built on the map on an indian burial ground and then his other house was built on an indian burial ground he built two not just one two houses on indian burial grounds clearly he had not seen poltergeist but yeah um, but anyway, what happened is, is his fiance supposedly tripped, fell down steps and broke her neck before they could move in, before they got married. And so he was wander out, distraught in the woods. Uh, and people would hear his ghost up in, up in the woods near there. And supposedly years later, then his ghost would cause carriages to crash and later cars to crash on that road. And so you had to be careful because his, his ghost was, was on the road. And you know, as time goes on, of course, you have these, these things built onto it, these layers. Um, but, uh, you know, a lot of these legends that just made me think of another one that, that actually kind of serves, uh, actually served a purpose north in Beaver, north up in Beaver County, there's this bridge called summit cut bridge okay. that, um, was, uh, basically the, the you know, the, there was an urban legend about it that when you would originally, when you would come down onto the bridge, now the modern version is that you drive under the bridge, you shut your car off in the dark, especially if it's foggy, you turn the lights yeah. back on and the ghost of a woman will be standing in front of you, but in front of your car. But the original mm-hmm. version was when you pull on the bridge that 
he, this ghostly woman will be there waving and you were supposed to not do what she was pointing to. Okay. She was like waving, you know, to pull over or something. You're supposed to just keep going and not stop. The reason she was waving is she was trying to trick you to plunge off the bridge to your death like she did. And this, the original Summit Cut Bridge was a sharp right angle built over the Pennsylvania Railroad that was the site from the 1890s through the 1950s of at least 10 deaths from people mm. plunging off the bridge in their cars sure. or, uh, you know, being killed in, in relation to the bridge. And that's the, the ones I could find. I, and there was always these implications that there were more. There were lawsuits from survivors that made them widen the bridge and eventually they replaced it altogether. And when they replaced it in the 70s, they made a more gradual turn onto the bridge. So it wasn't as dangerous anymore. And what I learned is when I interviewed people about it, the people who heard the story in the 50s, 60s, and 70s were usually often told by parents or older siblings or whatever. You just hear it in the community. But the story was really a warning because if you were looking for the ghost, it would slow down when you got to the bridge. Mm -hmm. So if right. you, you're slowing down to look for the ghost, you're not going to go flying around the bend right. and lose control. Unfortunately, the modern version is now the opposite of that. They're telling people to stop in the fog on a bridge <laughs> and shut your lights right. off. You know, right. So you can't flipped, be seen by other cars. <laughs> yeah, it's more of the traditional, uh, you know, kind of ritual legend trip type thing where, you know, you, you turn the headlights off and on or sometimes you have to put the keys to the car out in the hood so you can't escape quickly, you know, that, that, that version. But um, you, you see that in a lot of things. I'm sure you're probably familiar with like crybaby bridge stories and things like that in Ohio. Yeah. There's a few, one or yeah. two of those in PA as well. Um, yeah. You know, but there's always this ritual you have to perform to pre invoke the supernatural response, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so at the end of every episode, I always ask my guests to tell me a story and you've been telling me stories, but <clears throat> the first book of yours that I got deals mm -hmm. with a witch. Yes. Can you uh, tell us a story about the witch? <clears throat> sure. Um, my, uh, my, yeah, I have two books on witchcraft and it's actually my favorite subject about Pennsylvania. It, it's about, you know, this tradition of folk magic and everything, but in Western PA, there was this really famous witch, um, and her name was Mulderry. Um, and, and over the years, there's been a lot of stuff ascribed to her, which, uh, my, my, my last book was just about her. It was called the witch of the Monongahela. And, uh, but Mulderry is always one of these, these, uh, interesting characters. Cause even though she's a, a witch per se and labeled a witch, she's more of almost like a, an anti-hero in the stories where she, even though she's, you know, using supernatural abilities, she actually kind of uses them against bad people, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, one of the simple story, I mean, there's long convoluted stories, but one of the simple stories that kind of represents that is that. In 1795, supposedly she was down in, she lived in Haydenton in Fayette County, Pennsylvania, and south of Uniontown. And she uh, was, there's two versions. She was either in the marketplace or she's out picking berries. And there were a whole bunch of people picking berries. And um, these three men like, came over and they started making fun of her. She was known as a fortune teller, right? In fact, her other name was the fortune teller of the revolution. See, Mary Derry had been, uh, her husband was a Hessian soldier who switched sides in the revolution and eventually they came to Fayette County after the revolution was all over and they were actually both practitioners of folk magic uh, she told fortunes and would make whiskey she'd read like tea leaves and coffee grounds but also could do other things supposedly 
her her husband used folk magic to help him hunting. He was a professional hunter. Um, but people would go to see her and have their fortune told her how to f- find lost animals or lost treasure or, or whatever you know was missing. And so uh, her, she had a reputation already by the 1790s. <laughs> These three guys came over. They just started making fun of her, you know, uh, as a fortune teller. And at one point, she she didn't do anything. And at one point, she stops, turns around, and says, "You're all going to hang," and then walks away. And so everyone takes note, right? Because either she yeah. put a curse on them, or she's a fortune teller predicting their fate. Right. So um, shortly after that, the there's a guy named uh, one of the guys was named John McFall, and he went to he got too drunk in a, in a tavern, which a ta- by tavern I mean it was like you know it's the frontier, so it was somebody's house that doubled as a tavern, you know, at times. Yeah. And uh, he got in a fight with some people there and they kicked him out. And after everyone was gone, he came back, ripped the door off the hinges and beat the tavern owner to death on the floor of his own house. And he was then arrested. Everybody knew it was him. He was arrested. He confessed uh, and sentenced to hang. And they even have a a place to hang criminals at that point yet. So they hung him on the banks of the river. Um, They found a spot and they hung him from a tree on the bank of the river. And uh, he became the first person ever hung in Fayette County. The second person was a guy named Ned Cassidy, who, with a uh, friend of his, John Updike, which also is a separate story about the witch, but the two of them murdered a traveling peddler that was passing through, and who ironically was going to visit Mulderry to get his fortune told. But they murdered him, and at some point, uh, in fact, he even came to Mulderry asking for something to help him sleep, supposedly, because he felt guilty. Well, eventually, at one point, he leaves and goes to Ohio, where he gets into a bar fight, kills a man by accident, and is hung in Ohio. But first, he confesses to the murder of the peddler in Fayette County. They send someone with the information back to Fayette County, and he is hung. When the third guy heard about those two hanging, he went to Fay- he went to Green County, neighboring Green County, went to a barn and hung himself. Oh. And so it appeared to everyone that. Maldary's curse or prediction came true. And this it kind of represents how she was viewed. You know, she was had this weird kind of uh, in-between space. Even though she was called a witch, uh, she functioned more as what, what the, you would often define as a, a hex doctor or what they call witch master in this part of the state, um, where you were kind of in this gray area between the good practitioner and the bad practitioner, uh, you know, the witch and the folk healer. And it was this kind of in between. Of course, that's all kind of subjective, and you could move up and down that scale depending on who was, whose opinion was, you know, being interjected. But, but anyway, Mulderry, that that Cassidy, another interesting side story to her, to him is, uh, uh, he, the peddler they killed, they dumped him in a mill pond. Um, Cassidy, uh, or I'm sorry, after Cassidy fled to Ohio, but. The other guy, John Updike, um, fell victim to Maul Derry's apprentice, and she had an apprentice at the time, a woman named Hannah Clark. And what happened is uh, one day there was this man named uh, this man named Valentine Moser from uh, Union Tower, from Haydenton, that came down to visit Hannah Clark, and she lived near John Updike. And she walks into or he walks into her house and sees on the back of the door this drawing that looks like a person and has two nails tapped into it, just barely in there, and. Uh, he asked about it and she said, that's John Updike. He murdered that peddler near the pond. Every day I'm going to tap these nails in a little bit further and every day his head's going to hurt worse. Mm-hmm. Finally, he's going to confess to you 
that he killed the peddler. So this guy's intrigued. He thinks it's ridiculous, but he goes up the road then. And sure enough, he's complaining about a headache. So every couple of days he stops down, sees the <laughs> nails tapped in further, visits John Updike, and he's getting worse and worse. Eventually, Updike yeah. is bedridden, can't, can barely move, and Valentine Moser stops, and Updike tells him, look, I'm going to die. I have to confess something. And he confesses about <laughs> killing the peddler. So Mo- Valentine Moser runs back down to tell Hannah Clark, and she says, great. And she picks up the hammer and slams the two nails the whole way in. So Moser runs back up. <laughs> and he's dead um yeah. but you know that's an example of using folk magic you know folk magic works like like you know sympathetic magic or whatever it's kind of voodoo doll principle where certain things represent other things um and so that was basically the door if you think of the door as a giant voodoo doll in that sense um that's what the, the drawing of the door became mm-hmm. of course that's how you'd also kill a witch too if you were hexed uh, there were like witch hunters in pennsylvania that if you know you thought you were hexed they would light a candle, put a piece of paper on like a wooden door or a wall, you'd stand between the candle and the paper that trace your outline, then have you move away and then shoot your outline with a silver bullet. Wherever the witch was should drop over dead, supposedly. I mean, that's, that's kind of common throughout Appalachia as well, like in some of the, you know. Yeah. And so the traditions have blended so much. I mean, there's a lot of Pennsylvania German, but the English had very similar traditions with the cunning folk. And, and you know, many folk magic traditions have similarities in general too. So they all kind of blend in this region. Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks for recounting all of that. That's super. I, I'm very interested in witches and then the overlap with the silver as well. I've always thought was really interesting. So, well, where can we find you and follow you and, and keep up with all of your books? Uh, my books and stuff, uh, books are on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and the usual retailers. Um, I don't have a big online presence, but I have a, I have a Facebook page. If anybody's interested, feel free to send me a friend request. It's my face and the, the background of my Witches of Pennsylvania book. I have, I have a Witches of Pennsylvania uh, Facebook page as well um, for my Witches of Pennsylvania book. Um, but yeah, feel free to send me a message uh, if anybody's interested and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll add you. Um, so uh yeah, basically, you know, I'm working on some other other projects coming up too. So a variety of things. Awesome. I'm excited to see what all you come up with. Um, okay. So if you guys want to, which you should, like, subscribe, comment below. You can send me an email, Heather at smalltownmonsters.com. Um Give me some more names and maybe topics and I can locate different people who are masters in those topics of folklore. Um, Until next time.